Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us board game creators come together and talk about what we've been playing recently. And on this episode are... Mozart Games, Meeple and the Moose, The Meeple Dungeon, Andrew Bookaltz of BoardandGame.com, the Bridge City Board Gamers Community, and Cardboard Conjecture. And please take the time to check out the show notes for the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast. And, well, you know, here we go, eh? Hey there, this is Chris Morris from Mozart Games, once again for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. You can find me on Twitter as SpiderMo, that's spider with a Y, if you want to give me a follow for some board game thoughts, some of my game design challenges, and just a bunch of random thoughts and opinions. This week, I want to talk about a game that I recently acquired that doesn't seem to have gotten much of a lookover from a lot of reviewers, and that game is Ten Penny Parks from first-time designer Nate Leinhart and published by Thunderworks Games, the same people who brought us role-player and cartographers. Although most of Thunderworks Games are in the role-player universe, Ten Penny Parks most definitely is not, but it still has the amazing production qualities that they are known for. In this game, players are all building theme parks, trying to build the best design park incorporating rides, concession stands, and souvenir shops. It's a worker placement, tile-laying polyomino game with a bit of a twist. Unlike in most polyomino games where you're trying to squeeze the unique shapes in as close to one another as you can, Ten Ten Penny Parks spins it around, forbidding players from playing tiles adjacent to one another. Instead, Corner to corner is as close as this game allows you to go, while all the time trying to fit in as many things as possible while avoiding the trees that are placed around your board, messing up your plans. All the components in this game are top-notch, with linen-finished cards with gorgeous artwork, along with super chunky tokens, tiles, and player boards. The icing on the cake is the 3D big top that serves as a worker placement area that you can turn during the game, making certain attractions cheaper or more expensive. All the attraction cards are double-sided with an image of the polyomino shape on the front, along with icons that you gain when you purchase it, while the backside has art by Vincent Dutrait on it that has an old 50s-style movie or sideshow poster. Fortunately, you can flip the card to its backside once you've purchased it, so that art isn't wasted. The game plays out over five rounds, and each round players will place their three workers one at a time on the various spots on the board to gain the items on them. The only places that get blocked by opponents are the attractions, so those are usually fought over by the first worker or two that you place. Once you do place there, you'll gain an attraction to add to your board, paying its cost, then taking the polyomino associated to it onto your board, trying to maximize the space that you have and plan for future buildings. 
The attractions will also move your marker up on one of the three tracks that are on the bottom of a board, the track Awe, Thrill, and Joy, the three emotions that people associate with theme parks, it appears. The other worker placement spots allow you to remove trees that are on your board, freeing up just a little bit more space to place things, purchase concessions that will give you some extra income each round, money is super tight in this game, Take an expansion board, adding it beside your existing board, creating some more space to build in the future. Or to get a couple bucks from the bank, which, as I said before, money is super tight in this game. Once everyone has placed their workers, players will then move to the next phase where everyone compares the three tracks, and whoever's marker is furthest along each one can gain a bonus if they opt to move their marker back one space. If you choose not to, you instead take a victory point token for endgame scoring. In a three- or four-player game, second place also gets a small reward as well. Then the players can spend any money that they have left over to advertise their attractions. Each attraction will show you a conversion that you use to gain victory points, which is extremely important as every point and every dollar that you have is crucial. Once players have advertised, the game moves to a cleanup phase where the concession market is reset, the first player moves the big top to change the cost of new attractions that appear, and the round marker advances one step. At the end of five rounds, players will add up all of the victory points that they've gained throughout the game, plus any from their attractions, um, as well as anything gained from endgame cards that they were dealt with at the beginning of the game, and a couple of more points if they advanced along any of the tracks a certain amount. Money is only used as a tiebreaker, so it's best to try to finish the game with as little left over as you can. Tenpenny Parks plays very quickly and is lightweight enough to teach nearly anyone, but still offers enough decisions for hardcore gamers to enjoy. Because you only have around 15 actions in each game, every single decision is crucial, and buying an expansion board that you didn't need could end up costing you the game. I found point spreads to be very close in our games, with only a point or two separating a win from a loss. The fact that tiles can't touch one another really makes this game shine and separates it from so many other polyomino games that are on the market at the moment. I think for anyone who enjoys games like Baron Park, they'll probably find Tenpenny Parks to be right up their alley as well. There's also a solo mode that's been included in the rules that offer players a somewhat predictable opponent, but it does allow you to hammer out a game very quickly if you're looking for something to fill the time on a lazy afternoon. In all, Tenpenny Parks is a gorgeous-looking game that has some depth to it that can begin or end a game night very easily with a light rule set and quick playing time. Thanks for listening to my thoughts this week. Once again, I am Chris Morris, and you can find me on Twitter as SpiderMo. if you'd like to give me a follow there for some more of my insights and my gaming preferences. Happy gaming, everyone, and may all of your dice rolls be critical successes. Hello, my name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleInTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk about the games I played this week for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. This week was August Long Weekend in Canada, which means I got to spend extra time with my family. We frolicked in the pool, saw wooden sculptures of birds, and went out to the beach. Summer fun all around. I have a question. What are the links you'll go to to introduce the game to someone? This weekend, I invited another couple and the toddler to join us at the beach, and then we invited them over for lunch. And once the kids were down for a nap, I trapped them in a game of bullet heart. 
If you haven't caught my previous segments where I rave over Bullet Heart, let me tell you about it. Bullet Heart is a puzzly, push-your-luck pattern matching game for 1-4 to four players designed by Joshua Van Lank. Lanningham and published by Level 99 Games. In Bullet Heart, each player takes control of one of the very asymmetric heroines and tries to outlast their opponents. The game revolves around pulling tokens, called bullets, from your bag and placing them into your player board and manipulating them to match the patterns on your cards so that you can clear them from your board and send them to your opponent. The push your luck aspect comes into play as you pull bullets from your bag. Each bullet has a color and a number, and the color indicates which column the bullet will go into, and the number indicates how many spaces down it will go, skipping over any full spaces. Should the bullet hit the very bottom row, bang, you're hit, lose life point. If you lose all your life, you're out. The last player standing wins. Bullet Heart is supposed to be played with a 3 minute timer. This prevents players from stagnating and agonizing over their decisions, but because this was a first play for all of us, we chose to issue the timer. This let players weigh their options and ask questions about how their specific heroine's abilities worked. As the game wore on and more bullets were added to, to our bags, the rounds stretched longer and longer. Without the timer, there was no rush, no feeling of pressure to push your luck recklessly. Going forward, I'll insist that the timer gets used to keep that pressure on all players. The other game I played this week is A Choir by Sid Saxon, which was released in 1964. I'm kind of amazed that A Choir isn't more popular. In A Choir, players have a hand of tiles that they can place one at a time onto a central board. Should two tiles ever meet, a hotel is formed. Players can then buy shares in a hotel company at a price based on how many tiles that hotel is, obviously starting at size 2. If two, hotel, if two hotel chains ever meet, the smaller hotel is absorbed by the bigger hotel. Whoever happened to have the majority of shares in the smaller hotel gets a bonus, and the player who held the second most or minority of shares gets a bonus. That bonus is half the size of the majority shareholder. Then, all players have the option to either sell their shares of the absorbed company back to the bank at market rate, or convert those shares at a 2 to 1 ratio for the new company. For example, if the orange hotel was 5 square big and the blue hotel was only 3 squares big, if a tile gets placed adjacent to both of those hotels, blue would get absorbed. Now if I was holding blue 4 shares, I could choose to trade them to get 2 orange shares, which might be more valuable now that the hot orange hotel is 9 squares large. Play continues until either one hotel chain is 41 tiles big, or all hotels on the board are larger than size 11. Once a hotel chain is 11 squares or bigger, it's considered safe. It cannot be absorbed by any other hotel chain as it's considered too big to fail or something like that. Acquire is kind of brilliant. It's fairly rules light for how deep it is and the decisions you make on your turn can be agonizing. While luck can play a large role, you still feel in control of this game. You'll curse your opponents as they wrestle majorities from your grip and you'll need to choose between trading in your cheap stock for a lucrative one but then having all your money tied up in stocks means you will be unable to get in on the ground floor of any new, newly formed hotel chains. This game will quickly have all seven small hotel chains dotting across the board and then suddenly the mergers start. Hotels leap in value from $200 a share to over $900 a share. And very quickly, nothing seems safe from that dominating blue chain which is gobbling up everything in its path. I don't know how widely available Acquire is, but if someone you know has it and you haven't played it yet, I highly recommend it. The replayability of Acquire feels immense as I feel there's a mastery that can be developed. Knowing when to invest in a small company and when to merge it with a bigger one is key. 
There is a limited number of stocks in each company and ensuring you have the majority that when that share deck runs out is paramount. I lost this game because Otter had the opportunity to buy during a merger and drain the deck, snatching the majority of the purple hotel away from me. That single move earned him over $3,000 and I ended up losing to him by a mere 500 bucks. I suspect that Acquire will be hit hitting the table more frequently with my group as we all quite enjoyed this classic game. And that's all I have to talk about this week. If you want to read more of my board game reviews, you can find them over at MeepleInTheMoose.com. You can follow me on Instagram at MeepleInTheMoose or on Twitter at MooseMeeple. And have a happy Wednesday. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are recording again for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast, and we have one game to talk about this week. What game is that, Anna Marie? That game is The Coldest Night, designed by Brian Burgoyne, um, illustrated by Jack Gregory, and published by Indie Boards and Games. Yes, The Coldest Night. So or, we. Sorry, Indie Boards indie and Cards. Indie Boards and Cards. My yes. mistake. Uh, the Coldest Night, this is a game I pre-ordered just on theme alone. I heard, yeah. I saw that it was a card game and that it was about, you know, freezing to death or whatever. <laughs> I thought it looked pretty cool. And we got this a week or two ago. Mm -hmm. And then we played it for the first time when Norm from yeah. Cardboard Conjecture was in town. And uh, yeah, we played this with him for the first time. We played a, two, three games of it when he was here that night. And it's cool. It's a really cool card game. So how does this card game work it's all about um uh emptying your hand what's it called so, yeah car you got to get like get rid card of card sloughing or whatever, or whatever it's it. called yeah but the point of the game like that whole theme the idea is that you're obviously in the cold and you've got a fire and it's yeah. a cooperative game and you have to keep the fire going yes. um you have to run out the entire deck yeah. Your hand and the deck, all the cards have to be gone in order for you to win. So you have to keep the fire going. Yeah. So it, like thematically, just from the artwork and everything, it looks like you, you're you in the Arctic, basically. And you are in a cabin and it's freezing and snowing. And you're basically tearing this cabin apart. Everything, yeah. every having, piece of anything you can get your hands on. Having to go scavenge to go try to find yeah. wood. You're trying to burn everything just to make it till morning. Yeah. Is the whole the whole idea here yeah so on your turn you're going to have uh, you're going to start every turn with three cards in your hand at least depending and those cards are going to uh have different things that you would find in in a wooden cabin so maybe like, a blanket or yeah, a blanket there's like a rocking chair there's uh, shelves there's things like this just yeah. any random item that that's combustible is what's on uh, your cards and what you're trying to do is keep like she said is keep the fire burning and so every card every item is going to have a heat um kind of signature like a heat heat value, value and then an, an ash value and the fire pit is is going to consist of somewhere between one two three and four cards at any point in time it's, yeah no it starts out four. with three and then it can go up or down yeah, and, uh, and no less than one, or you lose. Yes, so you yeah, exactly. <laughs> if the fire goes out, you lose. You lose. So on your turn, you're gonna have this fire pit. It's just kind of a, a a set of cards, and you're going to add a card from your hand to the pit uh, to hopefully increase Stoke the heat the fire, keep temperature. It going. Yeah, or you're going to scavenge and find some more items 
more cards. You're going to draw cards into your hand uh, to use in the future. Or pass around, pass around or to, to the other around. players yes, because it is exactly. a cooperative game. Yeah, it is co-op so you can grab these items and, and toss them around. Usually yeah. you grab three. Three. Yeah. Three cards and you give... You can keep them, game, you can give them all away, you kind of keep whatever one you and need. give two away sort of thing. Yeah. But you can do whatever you want yeah. with these cards. And each card, yeah, each card has a heat value and each card has a ash value. And the way you're able to play your cards from your hand into the fire is if you have a card with an ash value of, say, four, as long as the heat value... The total heat value of all the cards in the fire... Yes, is four or more, you can play that ash valued card from your hand into the fire. Yeah, your ash has to be equal or less than the total heat value of yes. the fire, yeah. of the current fire. And then you can play that card from your hand into the fire, in generally, usually increasing, hopefully, increasing the heat value so that whoever's coming after you can play something else from their hand with a, a even higher ash value yeah. to increase the heat but more so. sometimes you have some special text at the bottom of your card, yes, which will make you, um, you know, burn an extra piece. So like you have to remove an extra card, so not just one, because every time you lay a card down, you have to take away the last card in the fire, so yeah. that there's only three in the yeah in the fire. Because thematically, the whatever the 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 last or the uh, oldest card in the fire is, is burned, burned away, up, into burned nothing. away. And it's going to go into a discard yeah. pile. So sometimes you can, and you can add sometimes an extra card up to four. Yeah. If there are ever only two cards in two the fire. Or the, two or oh, one. Yeah. One cards. or two cards in the fire at the end of your turn, you get what's called a frostbite. Yes, because it's literally too cold and you get a frostbite, you, your fingers start to turn black and you grab these cards, these frostbite cards, and they're going to do kind of a negative thing bad. towards you. They're bad news bears. They really, yeah, <laughs> they make things really difficult for you. So yeah. the more frostbite cards you collect, the worse things get. It gets more and more difficult for yeah. you to, uh, you know, survive the night. And the, the whole point of the game is for everybody to have sloughed away all the cards. Yeah. All the cards on my hand, your hand, his hand, and every card out of the deck. Yeah. And then you've survived till morning. Yeah. In the event that you have uh, gained every frostbite card, I think you lose. Yeah, if there are no frost card frostbite cards left, when you need to to gain, to one, gain one, you've, one, lost, you've lost. Or if your fire burns out, so yeah. you've let the fire go, and that can happen because oh, sure. you may have cards in your hand that you can't play. You can't play, and same and so forth, because if the heat value is too low, and all you have is like high ash cards. high ash cards. You, you are can't SOL. play. Yeah. And those frostbite <laughs> yeah. ones can be like, oh, you can't play any even ash cards or right. they really start to trick with you. And there are some um, there are some the text at the bottom is can do bad things, but it can also be like, oh, here's a little bonus. And then you yep. get a little bonus that can kind of help you out. Yeah. But because it, there's items. Yeah. There are items that items can, to gain that can give like you kerosene and, yeah, and things like that. Extra values and um yeah, various other things that can kind of help yeah. you along the way, trading cards with each other, things like this. And it doesn't happen often, but at the beginning of every player's turn, if you have um, if you have the frostbite cards in front of you, if the total heat value of the fire equals the exact value that's on your frostbite card, yep. you can get rid of it only on your turn. Yes, so you have a small window to 
to try and get rid of these yeah these uh, frostbite, frostbite cards. cards, but it's it's not easy. To no, <laughs> it's a very small window, and they <clears throat> pardon me, they don't happen very often. And you can't talk about what you have in your hand, so no, you, can't you can't try to you plan can't say, it. Oh, I've got this, yeah. this heat, or I've got this ash value ready to yeah. roll. You kind of you can talk about the situation you're in, and kind of discuss I'm the situation, but you can't give specifics yeah. about what's in your hand. But yeah, that's um the coldest night from indie. Boards and cards. Uh, boards and cards. <laughs> <coughs> Pardon me. And um, it's a it's a fantastic card game about yeah. surviving uh, freezing weather. Yeah, it's an awesome one. It's one of those co-op games that you don't win all the time, which is great. It's in challenging. fact we have not won. We haven't won yet. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, but we keep playing. Yes, it's, it's fun. Very very yeah. good. It's um, it's not an expensive game. It's uh readily available i think now i think it's only just come out in the last month or so so yeah if you want to run out and grab a copy uh the coldest night from indie boards and cards and uh yeah i think that's it for us today so i think so we're gonna run and we will see you next week cheers see ya Hi, this is Andrew Buckle of BoardingGame.com, and I'm here to talk about what I've been playing this week. This week, I'm going to talk about Fire in the Lake. Fire in the Lake is designed by Mark Herman and Volkel Runke. It was originally published in 2014 by GMT Games. The art comes from Roger McGowan, Chichu Nieto, and Mark Simonich. This is the fourth volume of Runke's coin series, or Counterinsurgency, which I've previously talked about on this podcast several times before. This particular volume focuses on Vietnam. The main game here covers the period from 1964 to 1972, but there are expansions available that take the game both earlier and later than that. I'm just going to talk about the main game today, though. Like the majority of the coin series, this is a four-faction game. It's best with four players, but there are options to play with fewer, either with bots controlling factions or with players controlling multiple factions. I've played this both with two players and with four players, and I think this title really shines with four, more so than even other games in the coin series, because all of these factions have strong incentives to not always get along with even their theoretical teammates. And while that tension's present in other coin titles, in this game there are some more direct things that you can do to knock back the person who's theoretically on your side as either an insurgent or a counterinsurgent. So, who are these factions? There's the Republic of Vietnam, or the ARVN, they're the US-backed government here, and what they want is a combination of population control and patronage, or personal wealth. They want to have the combination of those two factors be above 50. Then there's the US. They want support for the, the ARVN regime, and they want that to be high, but they also want to not involve too many of their own troops or to pull out the troops that they've already sent. So they want the combination of support and available U.S. troops and bases to be above 50. The U.S. faction is quite interesting in this because they're quite militarily powerful, but they can't keep too many troops in the country for too long. 
they also have to make sure that their fight against the insurgents doesn't help the ARVN too much and give the ARVN an easy victory. So those insurgents, there's North Vietnamese Army or NVA, and they're interesting in that they're a far more conventionally military faction than insurgents in many other coin titles. They still have guerrillas, but they also have the ability to bring troops onto the map and to directly take more control of areas. And they care about control of a certain amount of population for winning. They need population under MVA control plus the number of MVA bases on the map to be above 18. Another very cool thing with the NVA in this title is how they're linked into the Ho Chi Minh Trail. This is their supply route from North Vietnam to South Vietnam and is represented by a track on the map. They can spend resources to improve it, but the US can knock it down by air raids in particular and also by some event cards. And the coin factions can also send forces into Laos and Cambodia to hit MVA bases there and degrade the trail, but for the US in particular this is unpopular to get involved in these other countries, and so US troops there at the start of a coup round are removed out of play. This is a, a neat way to represent the international tensions that were involved in this particular part of the conflict. The last faction is the Viet Cong, or VC, and they are South Vietnamese resistance to the ARVN government. They want opposition and bases to be over 35. And they have an interesting back and forth tension with the MVA. They w are working together to take away coin control of areas, but they don't want to give the MVA too much control. And the MVA doesn't want there to be too much opposition. So the MVA can actually infiltrate and take over Viet Cong bases and turn them to North Vietnamese management. Overall, I think Fire in the Lake is an excellent look at the Vietnam conflict. The four-faction treatment of this makes a lot of sense, and it illustrates the push and pull even between sides theoretically fighting for the same or similar goals. It's highly thematic as well, especially in the full campaign scenario with historical event cards, so events coming up during the period of the war they happened in. This is a great volume in the coin series, and it's another great game from Herman and Runke, both of who have designed a lot of excellent titles. And that's Fire in a Lake. Thanks for listening. This is Andrew Buckles. You can find my board game writing at boardandgame.com. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew Buckles, B-U-C-H-O-L-T-Z. And if you're interested in more on historical games, check out sdhist.com. That's the website of the San Diego Historical Games Convention, and I'm involved with that and with putting together their free Conflicts of Interest magazine. You can download the first issue of Conflicts of Interest for free there. Thanks again for listening. Hey there, it's Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And uh, as typical, let's go see what the community has been playing. And uh, so what you've been playing Wednesday, Bridge City Board Gamers. 
And Hans, <laughs> Hans is going to start off with a, with a funny, clever one. It's very clever. Uh, that's pretty clever. And he says about 105 times. Uh, <laughs> that's very clever. Um, uh, Terraforming Mars and Dice Miner. So, yeah, right on. And uh, that's pretty clever. Oh, I think, oh, so clever or whatever. Uh, I think I'm going to mention a quick mention when I talk about my thing, but uh, let's continue. It's not my thing. It's Bridge City Board Gamers thing now. Uh, Mike, finished Pandemic Legacy Season Zero. Uh, favorite of the three Pandemic Legacy games for sure. Cool. I haven't played any, so I can't weigh in on that, but uh, have talked to the designer and uh, was, uh, was informed that there was a connectivity of sorts through these all three of these in a weird kind of way. So... Uh, yeah, cool. Pl also played Arc Nova, Ecos, and Marvel Dice Throne as well. Pretty solid week of gaming. Yeah, Arc Nova is very cool. I picked it up and uh, I'm having so much fun with it because it's got a, a, a good solo play. Yeah, uh, hard as far as like targeting that that uh, that end game scoring condition. So right on, Drake. Played some Dead of Winter last night. Always a favorite to me. I've not played. Yes, I know. What? You've never played it? No, I have not played it. Um, uh, but I understand, and uh, and uh, I understand it's a great game, and I've uh, always been interested in playing it. So right there. Uh, pause for a sip of coffee. <laughs> Just like a little kid. <laughs> uh, Jason Libertalia, Winds of uh, Galecrest, Spyfall, Love Letter, and Cribbage this week. Cribbage, solid. Uh, Libertalia, I've been told I need to play that because it's basically a, sa a pirate sandbox type game. So, yay. Spyfall, not big on the on the um, the social kind of game. Uh, I think that's Spyfall where you're trying to figure out what uh, where the where the place is, right? Uh, Love Letter, I've never played Love Letter. I'm so sorry. Uh, but there's probably a thousand iterations of it. The one that interests me the most is Batman Love Letter. Uh, Brian, uh, nothing the last couple of weeks. I've been playing catch up with schoolwork on my off days. Well, um, you know, you're on if you're a teacher, you're on holidays, right? Have some holidays, but I get it. In order to have a sane year, you got to prep. So it's sort of like what edge of the sword do you want to fall on? So there you go. Well, hopefully you'll get to some games, uh, my friend. Eli, I have family in town who likes playing games, so we get a few in. Marvel Champions, Spider-Man uh, versus Rhino. Uh, Downforce, Small World, Sushi Go Party, Quacks with both expansions. Uh, <laughs> Here we go, Love Letter Batman. Um, and another three-player unmatched with Dracula, Medusa, and the Invisible Man. Ah, right on. All of those are fantastic games. I'm not a big fan of Small World, and only because it's it, it's me. It's not you. It's me. Uh, I it, my brain never grokked it, and uh, so you know, there we go. But you know, honestly, if I went back to it again with the board game knowledge that I have accumulated, <laughs> the board game uh, uh, many ways for me to, to suck at board gaming, um, I probably would have a better crack at it. So I don't know. Maybe I'll go back to it. Uh, little cardboard therapy there for you. Lane, uh, Exploding Kittens. Well, that's insane. No, that's, that's quite a funny game. Uh, Suburbia CE. I think that's collector's edition. Uh, on tour, got my highest score and the lowest ever, 38th and 12th. Uh, Bacon Wars, 
uh, I think that's a game or a uh, subconscious. No, it's a game. Marvel United X-Men, Uno, All Wild, and Takedo. Cool. Nice. Oh, there's always a mix of kids and adult games in Lane's lineup. Hans, uh, on, uh, always commenting on Lane's on tour there. Uh, Garth, been on vacation the last while. Oh, as I, I'll talk to that. I uh, picked up uh, Caverna in Edmonton and have been learning to play it solo before introducing it to the family. Have been loving it so far. Played Dune Imperium. Uh, excellent, excellent. I'm quickly reading on. Uh, Castles of Burgundy. Fantastic. That's an awesome lineup. Okay, where are we going to? Ne- where are we going to next? Here we have Tyler, Stars of Acarios, and Parks. Enjoyed both of them. I've not heard of Stars of Acarios, but Parks I haven't. It's it's a great game. Uh, very as far as the mechanism go, very much like Takedo, where it's like the last uh, person on the on the journey or the path or the road is the first to go. So cool. Um, and last but not least, Dan, Zombicide, Night of the Living Dead. It's a very interesting take on zombie games. The pacing of the tension works really well. I've never played the Zombicide series, and it has interested me, um, but uh, I have to say that uh, I've just got a, a pile of games in front of me to play that uh, I think uh, have jumped the line. But, uh, you know... If someone's playing Zombicide and it's one of those, hey, you want to sit down and play? Absolutely, I would do that. But uh, yeah, other than that, uh, it's that whole... Um, I, I haven't been big on the Simon mini games, but they have a Dune one coming out, and I think I'm going to be all over that one. Well, um, what, how, what have I been playing lately? I'm going to quickly touch on, not necessarily what have I been playing, but what, have, what I've been up to um, directed towards playing. So, uh, if I haven't uh, you seen in social media, I um, I was commissioned to uh, build a board gaming table, and was so proud of uh, first of all the uh, the the <laughs> the fact that I was building it for uh, some fantastic people, Meeple Dungeon, and uh, yeah, I was so occupied and so uh, my wife will back me back me up on this. Uh, basically losing track of time, just geeking out on making sure that this was the most uh, uh, gorgeous, gorgeous piece of furniture. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm, but there's still part of me that is, uh, is always going to, you know, want to, you know, just, just a couple more hours or just a couple more hours, right? So, I mean, that's the, co- the, the compulsion for, you know, wanting to just produce a good, cool piece of furniture. And the cool part is it was uh, it was built out of, uh, and, you know, only some prairie folks will know this one, uh, Nipawin, which is kind of north of, of Saskatoon, northeast of Saskatoon. And uh, it's home to Tobin Lake, very famous, world-famous Tobin Lake, where there's, I think, world-record walleye and uh, northern pike taken out of there. And uh, But birch, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, birch forestry out there and so I have some I had uh, 20 years kind of aging uh, in the one of the sheds out o- over uh, at our lake and uh, so yeah brought it in and uh, we built a bo- gorgeous four and a half foot by six and a half foot uh, board gaming table with a three three inch uh, armrest that goes all the way around it and not a deep one because I mean I've experimented with all of you know, my little prototypes at home and uh, 
And uh, for me, I built that at what I would find a comfortable height because I mean, everything's subjective, right? Um, and uh, so, yeah, that's what I've been really occupying my time with, which would lead into something that I want to continue because it was so much fun. Um, uh, I called it incomplete um, pun and uh, uh, kind of geeky cleverness that my caffeine uh, pushes me towards. Uh, Wrath of Khan with the C-O-N instead of, you know, K-H-A-N. Khan! Um, and uh, it's uh, the board game needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, when I went to Kelowna, uh, um, you know, touched base, base with as many as I could and said, hey, let's, you know, while I'm here, let's see if we can play some games. So uh, we went to, uh, I think uh, off the top of my head, Welton Arms Beer, Craft Beer and Restaurant and uh, like a microbrewery. We, uh, ha yeah, had a great time upstairs. Uh, uh, as I said, uh, Rob and Anna Marie from Meeple Dungeon were there. Uh, Aaron from Boards Alive, and then of course people within the uh, uh, the Kelowna cardboard cabal, <laughs> and uh, yeah, played a pile of games. Um, one of the uh, one of my uh, more memorable ones is playing some Canvas and uh, just watching people process. I mean, the school teacher and me uh, likes. I love watching how people process learning, right? What are they looking at? What questions are they asking? Uh, to see the facial, the micro expressions of, of, you know, do they grok it? Do they not grok it? What's the frustration? And uh, yeah, I, I, I believe the majority of people at the table had fun with that. I, I, I like that game because of the simplicity and, and the depth of difficulty in your decisions, right? Either pick up a card from the market or make a painting. But the whole, uh, in this case, it's one of those games where it's that card creation where you have see-through acetates of different uh, uh, parts of an image. And then on the bottom, the uh, out of five different resources or resource slots, you have, uh, um, you know, symbols that correspond with the, with the judge's uh, point evaluation. And you're trying to build these pictures uh, mostly, mostly for the symbol connectivity with the point scoring, but also there's that, you know, at the end of it, you got kind of a really bizarre painting that has a generated title to it. Uh, so we played that. Uh, we played, I believe it's So Clover, um, which from the designers of Just One. And I could see a lot of DNA in So Clover uh, in regards to Okay, so so just to ex quickly explain to it, you've got this plastic holder that looks like a four-leaf clover, and it holds four different cards. If you look like a you know a four-square kind of quadrant, um, four different kind of clover cards that uh, uh, each card on the four edges have different words, and you are as far as the active player, your responsibility is to put these cards. Uh, clicked into this board in such a manner that if, if you're looking at it, you have the the four clover areas, which are the whiteboard where you can write your, your word, but you position the cards in such a manner that the two that are on the top, the two words there, you come up with a word that combines those two card, uh, card carrying words. Um, and uh, as you spin it, you'll have different words in those different clover spots, and you'll have to come up with a word that unifies these two words. And first of all, to, to sit there and go through those cards and position them and come up with an idea, 
is difficult enough, but to do that in such a manner that you're uh, trying to uh, um, create a, an opportunity for those people to interpret your word connections, right? Your, your literate and symbolic word connections to these words that you created. So what you do after that is you take the four cards, you add a random one in this, shuffle them up, put them on the, you know, put them on the table, put the holder down and tell them, okay, put those in proper order. Wow. The, it is a, a, a co-op game, I believe, or, you know, like, just like just one where, you know, you have that idea of you with the, with the, the, the elements uh, that are present in the cards or in just one, the whiteboard words, you have to find that connectivity. And the best part about it, I think I'm going to use these games when I go back to teaching psychology, if I ever do, to talk about empathy and, and um, context, right, um, in social psychology. Because, you know, an idea might mean something different to another person. So half of this game is, is wondering okay, well, what does this person mean by this word and the options that I have in front of me? I thought it was so cool. And once again, uh, half the time I was having so much fun uh, watching other people's interpretation of the potential of these because, again, we don't all see everything from the same subjective point of view. So this was a great way for me to look around and go, oh, yeah, okay, I guess, yeah, for sure. You know, I don't know much about that area of, of context where you pulled it from, like, you know, if it's a biology term, but I do understand it now, right? So it was so much fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that was such a great, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, couple nights or, or I think it was like three, four opportunities of playing board game that uh, the Wrath of Khan, the idea was just like, uh, like, what did I call it? A pop-up micro board game convention and uh, uh, big, long technical terms for meaning, hey, let's get together and play some board games, eh? Uh, <laughs> so will that be, that's a great transition. So that being said, um, thank you so much to the uh, people that are, that take the time and listen to uh, us blather on about board games and always uh hey thanks a to the cardboard content creators that uh, contribute uh, i'm going to try and find some more alliteration there if i can uh <laughs> it's a it's a kid show please um uh and uh <laughs> so with that being said uh keep your stick on the ice and take care out there eh?